welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what makes them tick. I'm your host, James O'Hamlin, and this episode I'm joined by conservation biologist, herpetologist, and according to her website, ukulele virtuoso, Deborah Bauer. Deborah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, James. <laughs> you're, you're not a, a stringent about the pronunciation of ukulele versus ukulele. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm okay with that. Good, I didn't want to make any faux pas necessarily into the podcast. (laughs) Now, I wanted to start by asking you about where you're at career-wise in science, because you've just passed a major threshold, that being the move into permanent employment, pretty much. (laughs) Semi-permanent. My... My contract's for three years, so... Yeah, but that's, you know, pretty damn good in the world of science. Yep, it is, <laughs> it is a major milestone to get past the, off the postdoc train, so yeah. um, that was very exciting. Yeah, and what, what does that mean in terms of where you can go science-wise, in terms of having your own lab and that sort of stuff? It's, um, it is a big step from being somebody else's postdoc and research officer and fitting in with what they want me to do mm-hmm. to launching my own um, bigger picture. So I've had to sit down and make a research plan and think about exactly what direction I want my lab to go in, what culture I want it to have, mm-hmm. what type of students I want to take on, um, and actually thinking ahead to the future. I think sometimes in science we get tied up just publishing papers and getting grants and it was interesting in this role to sit back and think about what I actually want to achieve into the future and Mm. what kind of legacy I would want my lab to leave. Yeah I mean so you have started up a lab and you've come up with a great name for it so which is? Laser. (laughs) (laughs) The Laboratory of Applied Zoology and ecological restoration. <laughs> Is that something you had sitting there in the wings for whenever you had a lab to name? <laughs> I mean, originally I was looking for words to fit into the acronym the Les Lab, <laughs> but I just I just thought Laser could have a better logo associated with it, and it was slightly more descriptive. Well, you're you're here at UNE now, which is also the home of the Fear Lab mm-hmm. and a couple of other really well named things. So. I think you'll fit in fine. <laughs> Add a lot, a lot to live up to. <laughs> but now that you're in this role of setting up your own lab and being a bit more permanent, is that less pressure or more pressure? Can can you relax a bit in that you're not in the, the sort of postdoctoral fight for your life stage a little bit? Mm. Or is there more pressure to get a whole lot more work done? <laughs> And in, yeah, an interesting question. Definitely the answer is both. Yeah. When you're a postdoc, or it completely depends what your postdoc is, but at least with my postdoc, I had a very supportive boss in Townsville who I could lean on for all kinds of support from mm. finances to career direction to um, publishing. And now, obviously, I'm the head of the lab, so it's really up to me to pull in funding to support Mm. my research and to do all of this research on top of the teaching role, Mm. which takes up um, a large chunk of the year. 
So it's it's definitely a new type of pressure <laughs> in that I'm I'm kind of leading now. But coming off the postdoc train is one of the hardest and most soul destroying things. <laughs> <laughs> that I think any scientist faces because the problem is that the bottleneck squeezes so tightly between a postdoc and a lectureship and you've come so far when you're in your second or your third or your eighth or your ninth postdoc you've made it so far on the train that coming off that can you you can wonder if you're ever going to get a job interview at some point mm-hmm. we apply for so many jobs before we actually get appointed that that is a terrifying stage. And so that has this whole set of pressure and um, uncertainty associated mm. with it. And I think that's why some people don't make it past that stage, um, apart from all of the other things, like the fact that they want to buy a house and have a life. <laughs> they, um, It's the uncertainty of knowing if you'll even ever get a job. Mm. I mean, were, were you at that stage of... Uh, thinking about going elsewhere or, <laughs> or yes. were you feeling like you might fall out of the leaky pipeline at some stage? Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking a lot about what the mix of things are that actually lead a person to get a job in academia, get a permanent lectureship. And I think that luck is one of the hugest factors mm. because if it wasn't that my boss supported me and found the grants for the last two years to keep me going. And if it wasn't the fact that I got rejected from a bunch of other jobs that I'd applied for out of academia, that I wouldn't be here right now. I mean, it's one of those fields you go into thinking, yeah, I'm good at what I do and if I just work hard, it'll all work out. But the truth is it doesn't sometimes. (laughs) It doesn't for a whole heap of different reasons. And and I honestly think that luck is and, and the stochast- stochasticity in the world are one of the big factors mm. that influence if you get there or not. And you can try very, very hard, mm. but even down to the people sitting on the selection panel and what they're after yeah. are one of the biggest factors influencing whether you'll get employed in the end. I feel like this is something that's being at least talked about a lot more now. Maybe it's just because I have a podcast, I like the wind about it a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's huge and it is important to talk about because if people are out there that and they haven't gotten off the postdoc train yet and they have been applying for jobs, then they need to not beat themselves up about it and just mm. know that there is a huge element of luck involved. Yeah. And what was, what was plan B? <laughs> what was your alternative career? <laughs> well... I would just really love to just be a writer writing fictional novels (laughs) all day long. Um, It might take a period of unemployment before I got a book together, but it was certainly a long-term backup plan. Take my (laughs) savings to Asia, uh, live cheaply in Cambodia and try and become the next. You're in a a shack with good Wi-Fi or something, you're set. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And failing that, there's always... Bunnings. (laughs) (laughs) Bunnings. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's a writing is a common theme for the people that I talk to in similar positions. Everybody's got half a novel sitting on the computer somewhere. Mm. 
just waiting to come down. <laughs> mm. I guess writing is one of the hugest skills of, of, of being a scientist, or certainly a research scientist. So, mm. yeah, there would be a lot of scientists with half-finished novels. <laughs> and it's something we can do and look like we're still working. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How would anyone know that we're not? <laughs> <laughs> but we should probably talk about your actual science. <laughs> So you've been doing all sorts of projects on amphibians and reptiles and the environments they live in. And as we're recording this podcast, we're we're following up a seminar you did here at UNE Mm -hmm. about work you've done on how frogs, amphibians, and how they're dealing with chytrid fungus. Mm -hmm. And it got me thinking, we've been hearing a lot about chytrid fungus. There's this huge, big force that's... You know, raining down on amphibians. I never really thought about whether there's some sort of ground zero for where chytrid fungus has come from and is it spreading out from one point or is it something that's already been there in lots of cases and just needed to be pushed over the edge? Yep, and that's been a big question in the science community for the last two decades. Mm-hmm. And a paper came out just a few weeks ago by Matt Fisher in science talking about the origin of the chytrid fungus Mm -hmm. so they now think that they've narrowed it down um, to Asia and that makes sense ecologically because Asia is an area where they haven't seen large-scale declines in frogs from disease of chytrid fungus Um, so even though the amphibian chytrid fungus is there the frogs have some level of of tolerance to the to the Mm. disease. And is it just that as it's moved out of Asia, it's encountering frogs that aren't resistant to it? Or is it changing as it goes? What What do we think? I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't know. That's not my area of um, specialty um, as to whether it's really changed. It certainly has different isolates that have different um virulence and so there's mm. this amph- global um, pandemic lineage of the amphibian chytrid fungus that is um, more virulent than other native strains okay and so frogs that get hit by that one are more likely to right. so we, we should explain for people that aren't amphibian biologists or anything this this thing it's we call it a fungus uh-huh. which might kind of sort of conjure up little images of mushrooms or something mm. <laughs> but it's more like i don't know what would you call it it's a skin disease that frogs get or something like that yeah it would be like athlete's foot is a human fungal mm. skin disease so their water balances through their skin yeah and so the fungi almost hardens their skin it stops them from taking in water the way that they otherwise right. would and um so it would be like if we had a fungus all over our skin that stopped us from being able to drink. And so we're having this fungus on them. They, can you see an infected frog? It's not like they go hairy like moldy bread or anything. They can show signs. So yeah. they can have reddened skin and um, you can detect the fungus by taking a swab and then genetically. Or you can take a section, a cross section of a toe and you can see it in the skin. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a bad enough infection, you can see um, the amphibian chytrid fungus under a microscope, mm-hmm. but it's not something that you can 
see on them other than the effects of it, such as slothing and, and mm. reddish skin colour. Right, and it's spreading like wildfire, essentially. <laughs> it's done yeah. a lot of its spreading already, oh, okay. so it doesn't have far left to keep spreading. There's oh, a... so that's not, that's not a good news story that, <laughs> that it's stopped spreading. It's done a pretty good job. Okay. I think New Guinea is the only largest place left mm. that, where it hasn't really gotten to where there's a lot of frogs for it to get. Yeah. But there's also pockets around the world where it probably hasn't reached yet. So islands and places that are isolated from from having a hot area surrounding them. So. Okay. so what is spreading it? Is it is it us? Is it people? In some cases, I think the pet trade has been a large contributor. Mm-hmm. Um, in other cases, it has been frogs and other animals moving through the landscape themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's an aquatic fungus. So if it starts at the top of the stream, then tadpoles and other things can bring it down the stream. Mm. Um, we don't know exactly all of the ways that it spreads. There was one paper that suggested that it can be detected in rain. Mm. Um, whether or not that happens on a large scale, we don't know, but it is very effective. It, once it gets into a landmass, it does seem to go through. Yeah. So as in it's actually getting up into the air in spores and coming down in rain, that sort of... Possibly. It's like something out of a... Science fiction movie. That's crazy. <laughs> I've played The Last of Us. That was a zombie human fungus. Sounds just like that. <laughs> and so you mentioned that Papua New Guinea's pretty, or at this stage, doesn't have chytrid fungus in it, and you've actually worked in Papua New Guinea looking at the frogs there. What's it like working in Papua New Guinea? It's fantastic. <laughs> it's um for people in Australia to go over there it's quite culturally different mm-hmm. I've worked in two different areas of Papua New Guinea one was in the lowlands and one was in the highlands mm. and they have very different cultural backgrounds mm-hmm. so I went to the highlands following an election period so mm. it was quite unstable but the people that I met were lovely Mm. And it's fantastic to go to the markets and not see vegetables wrapped in plastic. Yeah. To go into a very different landscape to what we have here. Mm. Familiar, but still different. And they have these giant mountains that go to 4,000 metres in the highlands. (laughs) And people are very fit and take you with them. And just from a cultural perspective, it's really fantastic. Mm. And there's lots and lots of frogs. So (laughs) they've had a radiation of the microhylid frogs, which are these um, little frogs that we have in Australia, but we don't have very many of them and they're not very diverse. Mm. But in New Guinea, they've radiated to occupy a bunch of different niches. Some are aquatic, some are super arboreal, some are living under the ground. And so it's really exciting for frog biologists to go to Papua New Guinea and see all of the really different, crazy, whacked-out frogs <laughs> that they have over there in the forest. Yeah, I mean, and you have works in some pretty special places, even just within Australia, mm-hmm. up in the rainforest and Cape York and all sorts of stuff. So it's a big call for you to say that Papua New Guinea's got some amazing stuff. <laughs> and I wanted to link this back to you know, the idea of you starting research in a new area now that you're here in the University of New England. 
What's it like being a biologist knowing you're going to have to do research in a new place, thinking about finding new nearby study species, and is is this just a, a free-for-all where you can go, yep, I'm going to go explore and see what I've got, or are you worried that, you know, what if we only have lame frogs around here and stuff? <laughs> what if we only have boring little brown things? Well, it's a bit of a sad story in this area. <laughs> <laughs> I was um, reading a paper um, written by Hal Heatwall, who sits over in the zoology department, and he'd done frog surveys maybe 30 years ago in the New England tablelands, and he'd found these cool bell frogs in Gyra, and he'd found a whole bunch of um, other frogs, um, the Burlong frog, just close by to here, and those frogs aren't here anymore. They've, oh. they've gone extinct in this area. Um, and so it's it's kind of sad to think that I might not have the opportunity to work with those species. Mm. But at the same time, it is um, still exciting and discoveries do continue to happen. Robin Push, Rob, um, Rob Pushendorf discovered the Littoria lorica, the almond mist frog, in the wet tropics just um, 10 years ago. So mm. a long, for a long time it was thought to be extinct and he rediscovered it. And... People from the museum are looking in the local area for the peppered tree frog, mm-hmm. trying to rediscover species. So there's some potential that things might be out there that we don't know about yet. Mm-hmm. It's a vast landscape around Armadale, mm-hmm. all of the gorges and national parks. So it could be potentially some very interesting finds. We had Jody Rowley on the podcast a couple of months ago talking about searching for the peppered tree frog. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard any updates on that. Do you know if they've had any luck? <laughs> I don't think they've quite found it yet. <laughs> I'm sure we would have heard if they'd discovered a mm. species and brought it back from the dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you're currently looking for students to join the lab to start new projects. Now yep. that you're here, did you have directions you want to want to take the students or take your lab in terms of things you want to study while you're up here? Yes, absolutely. We've got opportunities for students to do projects looking at how we can best manage wildlife in urban areas, looking at the frog population biology around the tablelands and how different land use types are explaining frog assemblages, looking at turtle population biology and the role of turtles in the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. We've got cool um, eastern long-necked turtles hanging around the farm dams here, (laughs) so looking at how we can manage farm dams for the turtles. Um, There's a few different projects going on. So Mm -hmm. if anyone is interested in reptiles or amphibians Mm -hmm. in the Tablelands, just let me know and give me a call. And you've you've always got a conservation theme to the kind of research you do. How is Australia going in terms of uh, amphibians and reptiles? I know with mammals, we're like the worst place in the world in terms of how many we've lost and continue Mm -hmm. to lose. What's your thoughts about how our amphibians are looking I think I don't want to be the bearer of bad news. You heard it here first. (laughs) But they're not doing great. Having said that, some some species are recovering. So there was these drastic declines some 20 years ago between the mid-70s and the mid-90s. And in some species, we've seen populations starting to recover. Mm. So that's an interesting progression and something that we need to keep an eye on and make sure that they continue to have the capacity to recover. 
um, there was a paper by Ben Scheele that came out last year talking about how it's about one-fifth of amphibians um, that have been hit by the amphibian chytrid fungus. Mm. So we do have a lot of threatened species in Australia that we're trying to manage. Mm. And I think we're having varying levels of success with that. Mm. Is that particularly in tropical areas or wet areas? Cause... So it's particularly down the east coast. Mm. And it was areas of high altitude where most amphibians declined. Oh, okay. So what? So the chytrid fungus doesn't necessarily do best in sort of wet, humid places. It is an aquatic fungus, so it affects yeah. stream frogs okay. disproportionately. Um, but because it's climatically quite sensitive, it affects stream frogs in high elevations generally. Okay. Unless the area surrounding is quite cold. So, mm. for example, Canberra and... Um, parts of Sydney, the green and golden bell frog declined all through that area because mm. it's cold enough down there that even in even in summer, it, the chytrid fungus can maintain an infection. Mm. And there's not really a, any sort of treatment for chytrid fungus or anything? To treat a frog, you would have to catch it and, <laughs> and either apply a treatment such as itraconazole or um, put it in a heated enclosure. So there's no treatment for wild frogs. Mm-hmm. Managing on a, on a scale of in the wild is very difficult. Some people have been starting to try and use probiotics, so um, the microflora on the skin of the frogs to try and combat that. Mm-hmm. And there's been some success on a small scale, but nothing on a large scale in the mm. wild for frogs. So is it then just a matter of stopping its spread and hoping for the best, or is there some way to reverse? I think it's what's very going on? yeah, it's very difficult to stop it spreading. Um, biosecurity on islands where that are still free from the fungus is really important, mm-hmm. um, and knowing that species can recover if they have enough remaining habitat in climatically unsuitable areas for the fungus means that we need to protect species not just in small areas but over the whole of their range Mm. and make sure that we don't just assume that because a species covers a large area that it will necessarily be safe. Mm. It needs a variety of different climates Mm. and it might not be the amphibian chytrid fungus next time, it might be a different fungus for a different species. So it's all about, I guess, maintaining natural habitats where they can survive in as many places as they can and even if one little population goes we've still got another one I feel like that's uh, we start to sound like a broken record after a while because maintaining natural habitats is kind of key to everything Mm. from I don't know having effective pollinator pollinator Mm. communities to having clean water to all these sorts of stuff so that leads into kind of a I guess a future research direction that I'm interested in, which is how we can build better if we're going to keep developing this world, how we Mm. can develop much more harmoniously with what we have so that we're not wiping out entire ecosystems just so we can use the area. So if we're going to make uh, frog-friendly towns and cities, what what do we need? Is it just about having ponds everywhere? What do we do? (laughs) I think we need to stop changing the habitat so drastically. Mm. So 
in Townsville, they're making these new developments and they're completely wiping out every single tree in the landscape, ripping mm. up the topsoil and then replacing them with not even particularly native trees. Mm. And there's no thought given to trying to keep the areas intact, mm. trying to keep the creek lines where they are and keep them healthy. Mm. And so particularly freshwater systems, which we often don't need to disturb when we build cities, can stay very intact. Mm. And so it's about incorporating and appreciating all of this native biodiversity that we mm. have and stopping to try and change it. I mean, I've always wondered that. Whenever I see uh, new developments go in, you'll see a landscape that has features, it has undulations, and it has patches of trees, and yeah, they do just go in and literally flatten it into a plain square. And I often wonder, why don't you just build into the landscape... And I think that's where the future needs to go. Yeah. We need to stop making the landscape fit us and we need to fit better with what's there already because in the long run, that'll provide a healthier landscape yeah. for everyone. And I reckon just nicer places to live. It would be, I just picture all little hobbit houses if we like dug into the sides of hills and around trees and stuff. It'd be great. Mm. <laughs> I think so. Not everybody... Not everybody agrees. So <laughs> part of the research needs to be about how we motivate people to appreciate the native biodiversity mm. as well. I don't know. I, I just don't understand the appeal of current suburban living where you have your your square block with a regular sort of looking one-story house. Mm. I feel like I'd like to live in something unique that fits the little corner of dirt that I've got my hands on. and. Mm. But I don't know, I do watch a lot of grand designs, so maybe that helps. <laughs> but I think we are the minority, as the, as if you look around you, you see even Armadale has these new estates, and mm. I don't think they've been built particularly environmentally friendly. Yeah, because uh, you hear a lot about green cities, and the focus just seems to be on vegetation within the city and having green spaces and that sort of stuff, but you don't think that's enough no, and there's been a lot of research in other countries that are ahead of Australia in this, in that they're building green spaces onto the sides of buildings and the tops of buildings mm. and incorporating nest boxes and all this designer conservation to help mm. threatened species find their spots again mm. and to green up areas so that we're not in these sterile environments that then allow emerging infectious diseases and, mm. and promote climate change and other threatening factors for for our biodiversity. Mm. And do you think that things like frogs and turtles and the kind of stuff you work on will be good as I don't know, a cheer squad or as a, something that everybody loves and we can get behind to make these big changes happen? I think both frogs and turtles are fantastic yeah. because people love them. The community loves them. You can touch them. You can catch them. You can feel them. Mm they're something that's around us and they do respond to these environmental changes and mm. we can all save a turtle when it's crossing the road um, on a rainy night and we can all pay attention use the frog app that's out there to identify the frogs in your garden or mm. in your local creek and just start paying attention to what's happening around us and the other really good one is birds so mm. watching what birds are around your house do you have feral species or do you have natives which plants are they using and how we can start to change and diversify the plants in our local spaces. And, and since um, we're such a cutting-edge science podcast with our <laughs> finger on the button, 
Do you have any thoughts on the Brumby situation? Speaking of potential high-altitude frogs being a threat. Mm. (laughs) Brumbies are a massive threat, particularly for corroboree frogs, which um, which have been reintroduced in various parts of their range. And it's really sad that the science hasn't informed this management decision. Mm. I think we are Australian and I love horses as much as the next person, Mm. but horses belong in paddocks. They don't belong in the wilds of Australia. Mm. They threaten the persistence of our Australian animals. Mm. And I don't understand... I don't understand the perspective of wanting to keep them in a place where they don't belong and where mm. they threaten all these other animals. And it's really sad that people can't separate um, the the value of horses and how beautiful they are and how much we do need them on our farms and in our lives socially mm. from their environmental cost, mm. which is the cost of all our other species. And if something... You know, as bright and colourful and charismatic as a corroboree frog can't be a, you know, a battle against that sort of decision, it's a bit of a worry. Yeah, it makes me wonder what's, what's driving people's decisions mm. and perspectives. And I wonder if it is the outrage of rural communities or if it's something slightly more political. Mm. Well, I mean, I heard some, somebody said something about... Uh, particular people giving donations to particular politi- mm. politicians that have influenced decisions, but who knows? <laughs> that old chestnut. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> that something to do with the uh, horse tourism industry down in the Snowy Mountains. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you raise a good point that, yeah, we, we simply don't understand how other people think. And and you said before that you know, we're, we're in the minority with thinking about how... We view the landscape. Um, I don't know. Is, is on this podcast, we're kind of just preaching to the choir a little bit. Where, where I'm just talking to other scientists. I mean, how do we communicate to people on the complete other end of the spectrum, or in a complete different bubble? However, you want to paint that picture. I mean, it's interesting, but they, I've, I've been reading a little bit lately about how there's some theories that even though we're in this more connected world where, where you can meet anyone anywhere in the world because of the advent of the internet, it's made us now less connected because you find people that you agree with mm. and you surround yourself with them and then they confirm your beliefs mm. and you get further and further away from people who believe different things to you. Mm. And so when you do talk to people who don't have the same view as you, you don't need to survive with them like in the olden days when we lived in small villages we had to get on with people because we Mm. had no choice and we were around our extended family and and so we loved them and we excused some of their behavior and things have gotten so polarized now that it's less about the argument and more about the extreme that you belong to Mm. and you can see it in the states with people on one side of the fence or the other one side of the trump fence and it's very, very hard to have a conversation grounded in fact mm. that doesn't end in war. Mm. And I think I do agree with the hypothesis that talking to each other and increasing our understanding goes back to surrounding ourselves with people that aren't like us. 
Mm. So going out and for environmentalists talking to people who have the complete opposite um, perspective to them Mm. because then you can understand where they're coming from. One classic example was I was quite mad at my mum because she went to Indonesia and she wouldn't... um, she wouldn't squat in the bush. So she made a really big deal about (laughs) finding a toilet. And I thought that that was ridiculous and I couldn't understand it and it really annoyed me. Mm. And when I finally asked her why she did that, she said that she was scared that she didn't have the muscles in her legs to squat without peeing herself, (laughs) which is something that I can relate to. It would be awful to pee on yourself and then be stuck for the rest of the day smelling of wee and very embarrassing for someone. So... By talking to people and hearing these things that we just can't think of, we, it hadn't even occurred to me that that was what was stopping my mum from peeing. I thought she was just being prissy or mm. pompous. Um, I think by actually talking to people and finding out what it is that their values are, we can probably start to break down the barriers and, and give that information back as well. So they might not know some of the information that we have mm. that can help them reassess how they think. Mm. I mean, particularly with things like social media, it's a perfect example of how you customise your feed just to tell you what you want to hear. You Mm. have your ads directed towards your interests. You only follow particular people on Twitter. And, yeah, you do end up with a really sort of narrow view of of the world. And Trump's a great example of that when someone like that gets elected or even there are some Australian politicians when they got elected. Mm. It just took everyone that, or took me and everyone that I know by shock because we could not comprehend Mm -hmm. that someone would think of that way because we genuinely don't know anyone that thinks that way. Yeah, I was, where are these people? Who is voting for these people? Because they weren't people in my network. And so finding those people and talking to them is part of the challenge. (laughs) And and I think it's important that it's actually sort of face-to-face talking, which... Seems to be hard to do these days. Mm. <laughs> it sounds terrible, but having that one-on-one human connection with people, it, it takes effort. Mm. It takes effort, and the less you do it, the harder it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're all so busy doing everything that we tend to take shortcuts, like phone calls and emails. Yeah. And and you're right, because it is so connected now, we're not even next to the people that we're necessarily talking to. So. Mm. I think when you, it's hard to hate someone up close. When you actually get to know someone, usually you find something you like about them. Mm. It's very rare that you genuinely meet someone who you can't get on with on any level. And talking to someone allows you to see that and peel back those pictures and it puts the emotion back into conversation. There's Mm. the number of of, um, arguments that I've had with people because of text message where the intonation (laughs) is removed and you can't tell in what manner something was meant. Hmm. And so now that you're here starting up your own research profile, what's the plans for getting out into the community as you're joining the local soup circles, uh, pump spin classes? (laughs) (laughs) We've been trying to do different things. We've been to the community gardens. Oh, good. I've been getting in touch with the local community groups. Um, I think we're just really open to anything that's going on. We Mm. don't have a great deal of friends and family in Armadale, so we don't have too much on the calendar and we're just excited to get out and meet everyone. 
There you go. If, if you're a potential student and you they want to buy you a coffee, you've got spare time. <laughs> sure. <laughs> And if people want to find out more about your research, they can follow you on Twitter. Yeah. That's just at Deborah underscore Bauer. Mm-hmm. And you have a WordPress blog, deborahbauer.wordpress.com. And it's got all information about yourself and your research and all that there. Yeah. All right. I should let you get busy writing novels. and. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, James. No worries. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Okay. Thank you for listening, guys. If you want to check out more, we're at InSituScience.com or we're at InSituScience on social media. Make sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.